Well, good morning. If we haven't met, I'm Aubrey, and I do look forward to meeting you. The Coleman's. Holy cow. No, I thought that was Kyle and Melissa. Caught me off guard there. Sorry about it. Erase that from the record. <clears throat> Janelle, Janelle accuses me of, like, um, when we're driving, I suddenly see something, and I get startled, and I gesticulate. I think that was that. Okay, let's start over. This is the eighth sermon in a series of sermons focused on the book of Exodus. And so if you brought a Bible, find Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17 and 18 uh, that Bob read to us just a few moments ago. Now here's what's interesting. Just remember, the Bible was originally written, it wasn't written the way it's formatted in most of our Bibles. You know, most of our Bibles have these chapter markers and verse markers. That, that was added centuries after the fact. Um, in this case, over a millennia after the fact. And it was so that in settings like this, we could all find it. You know, if there was no like chapter marker, verse marker, we'd just be like, like, find this phrase, you know, and it'd be difficult to find. And they're super helpful, chapter and verse markers. They're helpful for finding a place. But they're unhelpful sometimes, like this morning, when they make you think a story ends and you're starting a new, like in a novel, a new chapter. Because think about what we heard when Bob read to us. We actually heard two episodes that are in parallel to each other. Both episode involves a foreigner coming to visit Israel. One, Amalek, who's the chief or the king or whatever of the Amalekites. The other, Jethro, who's a priest, but the word for priest can be translated either chief or priest. So you've got two like rulers from, who are foreign to Israel coming to visit Israel. And they're told right next to each other in very quick episodes. And you're supposed to compare them. You're supposed to look at them and compare and contrast them. Two stories held next to each other for comparison's sake. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Let's look at the first story. Exodus chapter, the last half of Exodus chapter 17. Verse 8, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. All right. Amalek, um, he's the leader of this group, the Amalekites, and they're this nomadic tribe that live in the desert in the south of Canaan. And they, they seem to live by plundering because they were in the desert. It's not like they could grow food and all that kind of stuff. They were plunderers. They would make raids against their neighboring like clans and stuff in order to capture animals and humans that they would sell into slavery or marry, and they would get various treasures. And this huge group of Israelites who's just plundered Egypt, right? They got lots of gold on them, right? And they're traveling through this area, and they don't know how to fight. Um, this is like a prime target for them. And apparently, Deuteronomy tells us they wait until a moment when Israel that's traveling through the wilderness is exhausted. And they're um, hungry, and they're weak, and they're vulnerable. And Deuteronomy t chapter 25 says that the way the Amalekites attacked Israel was they got the old women and the children and the sick people first. They picked them off, the stragglers, the weak people. 
So in Exodus chapter 17, verse 9, we're told, All right, Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And then in verses 10 through 13, we're told that for a whole day, the battle sways back and forth, and Joshua's on the ground leading the troops, and Moses is up on top of the hill, and he's holding up a staff somehow with his arms outraised. And every time Moses gets tired and he drops the staff, uh, did you catch it? What happens? Uh, yeah, the, the Amalekites start winning when he raises the staff back up. The Israelites start winning, and, and he gets tired, and so Aaron and her, Aaron his brother, and her, this other guy that shows up here for the first time, they hold up his arms, and they end up holding his arms up all day long, and at the end of the day, Israel wins the battle. Now, what's this all about? Well, we're not exactly sure. Um, you've got to kind of imagine it in your mind, right? Israel's down in the valley a little bit, and here's Moses, apparently close enough that the troops could see him and we do know that we know two things one we know that arms raised in the old testament is a common posture of prayer okay so you know how if you grew up um in a baptist church at the end of the sermon the preacher would say now every eye closed and every head bowed um or if you've ever been around christians a lot who pray our particular position for prayer is to close our eyes their position for prayer was raised hands, just like we close eyes. So that's why, by the way, you often see priests in services like this when we're leading prayers with our hands up. It's just this Old Testament position for the leader of the prayer to, to do it like this. So it seems that what might have been going on, very likely, is that Moses is interceding. And he gets tired of interceding, like we do, right? <laughs> and he uh, takes a break and, like, I don't know, has a bologna sandwich or something. And when he stops interceding, Israel, um, they're losing the battle. So th there's a very good chance that that's, that's what's happening. The second thing is this staff that he's holding. This staff is called the staff of God. It, it's the staff that God gave Moses when he was sending him back to Israel, saying, look, you're going to use this staff to do these amazing miracles. And, um, and God did these incredible things with this staff, right? And so right before our story, right before the passage that Bob read to us, we read starting in Exodus 17, verse 8. But the last line of verse 7, Israel says, Is the Lord among us or not? The staff represents to Israel God's presence because they saw God do powerful things when Moses used this staff back in Egypt. So another thing that seems to be going on here is that by holding up the staff, Israel is being reminded that God is with you as they're fighting this battle. They look up, they see, they remember the mighty power of God in Egypt and that God is still among them. And then, like I said, at the end of the day, they defeat the Amalekites. Now, notice verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Now, that's what God promised to do back in Genesis chapter 12. When God first called Abraham to himself, remember he told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and I will, does anybody know? Curse those who curse you. 
And here we have a foreign nation attacking God's people in a vulnerable state. And God says, here's the deal. You've got freedom when it comes to me. When it comes to me and my work in the world, you are free moral agents. And if you participate with me in the redemption of the world, in my work to heal creation and to make all things new, if you're a friend of this work I'm trying to do to deliver the world from evil and sin and death, then I'm going to bless you. But if you turn against me and my work in this world, then it's not going to go well for you. And Amalek and the Amalekites are an example of that. All right. The next story, the first half of chapter 18, is another foreigner, this time a Midianite. It's Jethro. And Jethro comes to visit the Israelites. Now Jethro happens to be Moses' father-in-law. And he brings with him Moses' wife and children because at some point as Moses was traveling to Egypt to do all the work that God was calling him to do there, they had to go back home for some reason. We don't know why. So Jethro arrives and he's got Moses' long separated family and they hug each other and they kiss each other. And notice in verse 8, after they greet each other, they go into Moses' tent and it says, then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Now this is, let me just give the answer. This is evangelism. Basically, Moses said, let me tell you what God just did. And he uses one of the most frequently used words in all the Bible for salvation, deliverance. And it's used five times in these couple of verses. Let me tell you how God delivered us. And he told it to him with passion and with joy and with detail. Now notice how Jethro responds. Verse 9. First, we're told in verse 9, Jethro responds with joy. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. He responds with joy to this amazing story of this power of God and what God had done. The second thing he does is verse 10. He breaks into praise to God. For delivering. So the first thing is, he's kind of like, man, that's awesome. And the second thing is, he turns to God and praises God. He blesses God. And then in verse 11, he says, now I know that Yahweh, this particular God, is, is greater than all the other gods. And then in verse 12, the fourth thing Jethro does is he worships God. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, Moses' father-in-law, before God. Look, that's a worship service. Praise, blessing God, eating. That's the way worship has always occurred. Now let's pull back a moment and think about what's happening. Moses has simply shared good news about what God has done in redeeming Israel. Jethro hears the story, believes, rejoices, and worships. This is evangelism. This is sharing the good news. It's what we heard in 1 Peter chapter, 1, chapter 2, verse 9, that Beth read to us. Listen to this verse again. 
You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, God's special possession. Now, if you didn't know where that came from in the Bible, that sounds exactly like what's just happened to Israel. Chosen, royal priesthood, special possession. And then listen what comes next. So that, why have you been chosen? Why do you get these amazing gifts? So that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Remember, I've been saying all through this series on Exodus, Exodus is the story of God delivering Israel from bondage to himself for the sake of the world. God delivers us to himself for the sake of the world. And the New Testament says we're just like Israel. That in fact what Israel went through was a foreshadowing so that we can understand what the cross is about and what God does with us. In other words, our job is to do just like Moses. Just tell the news that's so good. Tell the story to your father-in-law, to your neighbor, to your friends. Just tell the story of what God has done in Jesus to deliver us to himself. That's our job. Our job is to use words to tell people the news that's good, the gospel. And like it says in 1 Peter 2 verse 9, what is it? It's that God has delivered us to himself for the sake of the world. We've got to tell the story. We have to do this. This is our privilege and our responsibility. All right. So there are these two stories of these two foreigners responding to Israel and to what God had done to deliver Israel from Egypt. One responds in antagonism and attack, and the other responds in conversion and in believing in this God. It's, it's not more complicated than that. Now, here's what's, here's what's a good thing to do with the Bible. When you read the Bible, it's, it's often a great move to, to sit back for just a minute and to look at the various characters and to ask yourself, who of these do I identify with? So while I've been studying this passage and reflecting on it this week, I've been struck. Some of you are very much like Israel in chapter 17. You are being mercilessly attacked, physically, spiritually, the burdens in our church are overwhelming. The people who are experiencing like their weakest spot being exploited. What do we do in these kinds of moments? Maybe we wonder, like Israel, is the Lord among us or not? And I want to encourage you. Think about what happened in that battle. Think about how Moses is interceding and Joshua is leading the battle. When we're going through these very difficult experiences in life where we are experiencing some form of attack, whether it's spiritual or emotional or something, it's often really important that we respond in two ways. One, with prayer, and two, with practical action. When I read this story, I think about Bishop Andudu, who is called to such costly and courageous leadership of God's people in the Nuba Mountains. I hope that you all know Bishop Andudu, his wife, Mama Jalila, 
Bishop Ondudu is a refugee from Sudan who they live here in Harrisonburg because the governor of the Nuba Mountains was trying to kill Ondudu. And they were leading a genocide um, to wipe out the Christians. When I look at Moses here on the mountain holding his hands up or on the hill, I think about Ondudu. And I think, shouldn't we as a church be like Aaron and her? Shouldn't we hold him up in this very difficult work he's having to do? Our church has worked over the last 18 months or so to form a 501c3 called Pax Dei for Nuba, the peace of God for Nuba. It harnesses the energies and the prayers and the love and the resources, not only of incarnation, but many, many other churches and individuals and institutions to support the restoration of a thriving society in the Nuba Mountains. The Nuba Mountains, they've been in civil war for 30 years. 30 years. And so Pax Day for Nuba is a way that we're trying to hold up Bishop Andudu's work there. And through this, we're working to develop a network of churches and schools that are committed to evangelism and discipleship and peace building and economic development. This is one of the most decimated places on the earth. Um, Martin, right here, he went with Mike Deaton and Ernie Dito and, is that it? Um, about 18 months ago, right before the pandemic, um, to begin to establish this work there. I, I encourage you, over the next several months, we're going to talk more about this, and I encourage you to, when you read passages like this, and then you look, and right among us is somebody like Bishop Andudu to reflect and say, how can I be like Aaron and her? How can I help this? I encourage you to get to know Bishop Andudu and Mama Jalila and Yusuf. Yusuf, can you wave? Yusuf leads Cush Anglican. So Cush, the Arabic-speaking church that we support, that meets here in our building on Sunday afternoons, these are refugees from Sudan. It's an Arabic-speaking church. Yusuf is leading this because right now, Andudu spends up to six months a year there. And so then when I read this passage, I think again about Mama Jalila and their children and this enforced separation that occurs. And who of us is going to who of us is going to be like Jethro to help love and care and support a mother and her children who because of God's deep work in a very vulnerable place in the world, a family is living apart for such long stretches of time. Let me shift gears here, though. You see, it's always fun to read the Bible and reflect on the people in the stories that you like and to find how you can connect up with them, right? But there's some bad people in this story. The Amalekites. And we need to be honest. We need to look at the Amalekites and see is there anything in them that shows us something in our own lives that we need to be serious about. Now, with all humility, let me share with you, I think, a couple of unsuspecting ways that Christians like us are Amalekites today. 
one political and one economic. And look, if the Bible can't challenge you in those two places, then what are you doing with it, all right? So just give me your ear for a second. There is a tragic irony that some conservative Christians have fallen into in their uncritical and unquestioning support for Israel's policies and actions in relation to the Palestinian territories that are filled with Christians and the Christians in the Palestinian territory today refer to Christians in the West as Amalekites. Because when we unquestioningly support the expulsion and destruction of our brothers and sisters, that is exactly what the Amalekites were doing. They were assaulting God's people. We need to consider our Arab sisters and brothers in Christ in that land. That's one way that we accidentally, not by trying to be mean, not by trying, to, but just by trying to do good, but we accidentally don't realize how we're actually sniping and assaulting and killing and displacing God's own people. And that's the definition of an Amalekite. Okay, an economic way. Those of us who live in the wealthy countries of the West and the North and call ourselves Christians, too often we are consciously or otherwise complicit in international patterns of unjust trade and exploitative practices that have devastating effects on the economies and lives where the majority of the Christians in the world live. Our cheap consumption of goods comes at a high price. But we're not paying the high price. The high price is being paid in the sweatshops and the clothing factories and the electronic component factories and the other places where virtual slave labor is going on in the global south. We want cheap prices. Somebody has to pay the full cost. And many of them are Christians. They are our Christian brothers and sisters in sweatshops, in virtual slave labor. And so it's not because we're trying to be mean, it's because our global economy hides this. And we just don't recognize that it's happening. And so we're accidentally implicit in acting like the Amalekites. And in messing with God's people, we're destroying lives. We're picking off the feeble and the weak, the women and the children whose, whose lives are blighted and lost in the machinery of globalized markets. Now, what do we do with all this? Because it can feel quite heavy. That's the challenge of this political and economic edge. And that's the problem with when we only look at the Bible in kind of close personal terms, and I say, well, I'm not killing any, I'm not like shooting my neighbor. And when we, when we recognize 
that the Bible is trying to open up our lives to the whole world, it can quickly get overwhelming. And there's no perfectly safe place to stand, right? There's no place where you can be where you're entirely free from any kind of like involvement in the world. So what do we do? We cry out to the Lord Jesus and we ask him for mercy because he offers mercy. He does. He offers mercy to us. And, he, and he, I love this passage in Psalm 103. He remembers that we're made from the dust. He gets it. He gets that we have limited perspectives and we have limited time to figure things out. And we have limited options in all of these things that we can do. The story of Exodus is that God delivers us from the gods of this world to himself for the sake of the world. So find a place where you can be a participant in that. Find a way that you need to be delivered. And let God do that with you. And then let him turn you and your energies to taking these gifts he's given you for the sake of the world, whether it's with Bishop Andudu and our work in the Nuba Mountains or our, our work in places here in Harrisonburg where there's brokenness and there's loss and there's destruction. But as you do these things, don't ever forget, we all need to be saved. We all need to be delivered from this world to the Lord Jesus Christ for the sake of the world. Let's pray.